to another quarantine episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Well, it's been quite a few weeks of the new year, and things continue to be both slightly hopeful and still slightly terrifying. Please remember that the most important thing for you and me is to be focusing on keeping healthy and minimizing our risk of developing COVID-19. Now, there has been a slight lull in hospitalizations as of late, but there are several new, more easily spread, and even potentially more deadly strains that are either already in the country or might soon be coming. And so we really need to continue to focus on these sorts of uh, things that keep us safe. Because unfortunately, in a global community with easy travel among countries and continents, viruses can spread easily across the world, as we've already seen with COVID-19. And if you get the vaccine, if you're in one of the groups that are eligible for the vaccine, please get it. The faster we have vaccine uptake combined with proper mask wearing and social distancing, the faster the pandemic will be behind us and we can return to some semblance of normal life. And so I think I mentioned this last week, but again, make sure that if you are getting the shots that you are still using a mask and practicing social distancing, because especially in the first couple of weeks of when you have the um, vaccine, it hasn't yet ramped up enough. And even after you get the second dose, there still needs to be a certain amount of herd immunity that needs to develop in order for people to be truly safe. Now, luckily, though, we actually have scientists and public health experts being welcomed back into the federal government. And so that makes me feel much better about the scope of the response to the pandemic moving forward. But of course, we still know that they were left with very little. And in order to be able to move forward, we have a lot of rebuilding to do. Um, Hopefully, things are going to go well, but we just have to keep moving forward with wearing masks. If you could wear two masks, that's even better at this point. And practicing social distancing, making sure that we aren't going to places where there are a lot of people, um, especially in this time where those gatherings are usually indoors because of the cold. So yeah. All right. Let's let's move on and talk about this week's slate of stories. So we're going to start with a happy story arising from what was actually a disaster. You may remember back in 1991 that Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines erupted dramatically with a 28-mile-high plume of ash and pyroclastic flows, killing hundreds of people and burying valleys in hundreds of feet of ash. 
Now, it's interesting, that actually could have been a much worse result, but researchers were actually able to forecast the eruption, allowing tens of thousands of people to evacuate the area. I actually remember seeing the news reports at the time. Um, I especially remember seeing people being evacuated from um, the Clark Air Force Base, and I remember them um, still trying to get people out while the volcano was erupting and seeing the ash clouds coming down and the um, and just seeing the devastation. And so one of the lesser known casualties of the eruption was thought to be the Pinatubo volcano mouse, Apomis sacovianus, which was first described outside of local knowledge, obviously, by D.H. Johnson in 1956 near the Sacobia River. This specimen was brought to the Smithsonian Institution in Washington as a holotype, which is generally a representative specimen to which all other potential members of the species are compared. This one species was the only one noted by the Smithsonian's collection, and it was thought that it would obviously have been wiped out by the eruption. However, around 10 years ago, investigators led by Danny Valette, a researcher at Chicago's Field Museum, in conjunction with the local Eta people, were able to identify a variety of mice in the post-eruption landscape of the volcano. The team also found eight different species of bat, and locals reported sighting pigs and deer as well. In all, seven different species of rodents were cataloged, with the Pinatubo volcano mouse making up 60% of the rodents that they were able to trap. The fact that Danny found this localized mouse was overwhelmingly the most common species was completely unexpected, Eric Rickart, a mammologist at the, Univers at the National History Museum of Utah and lead author of the recent paper, told Gizmodo. The discovery led us to realize that what we were dealing with was an animal that had managed to hang on, survive, and thrive in this early second growth habitat. And so the mice seemed to have really not been harmed, but rather even helped by the eruption, with a much larger population now found than what seemingly was there before the eruption. Now, it may be that the mouse actually prefers the regrowing sort of scrubland and second growth habitat rather than the dense old growth forest that was present prior to the eruption. In all, the fieldwork done in 2012 found 16 species in addition to the mouse, which have seemingly returned to the area, suggesting that it is beginning to rebound. After the eruption of Pinatubo, we looked for this mouse on other peaks in the Zambales Mountains, but failed to find it, said study co-author Lawrence Heaney in a Field Museum press release, suggesting a very limited geographic distribution for the species. And so this is actually usually a problem for species, because if their limited range is disrupted, it can lead to extinction. But here, it seems to have barely phased the little rodent. 
We're hoping this is a real bright moment, Ricard said. Not only discovering that there are species of native mammals that can withstand this kind of magnitude of disturbance, but also telling us something about their resilience and being able to become reestablished if given an opportunity. So that is very cool because those little guys uh, seem to be thriving. And, you know, it's nice when you have a uh, landscape that was basically blasted that you can go back and find that there are actually species already repopulating it just a couple, just a couple of decades later. Okay, so let's move on to a different kind of rodent, the naked mole rat. Now, naked mole, mole rats aren't going to win any uh, beauty contests, and they're also extremely weird, but you know, they're still really interesting animals. There's a ton of things that make them weird, in fact. They can move their front teeth independently. They don't drink water or anything at all like that. They get all of their moisture from their plant diet. They can live into their 30s. They build miles-long tunnels and have 17 different vocalization chirps, hisses, and other sounds. And they also use their sense of smell since they're almost blind. We're going to actually be talking about their vocalizations tonight. New research using computer algorithms has shown that different colonies of mole rats have distinctive dialects that help them know who belongs and who is a potential enemy. Every colony has a single breeding queen who controls tens to hundreds of non-breeding worker rats, which are charged with digging the subterranean tunnels which they use to search for tubers in eastern Africa. And since that food is scarce, they need to know who is part of the colony and who is not. Naked mole rats are incredibly cooperative and incredibly vocal, and no one had really looked into how these two features influence one another, said Alison Barker, a neuroscientist at the Max Delbruck Center for Molecular Medicine in Berlin. Barker and her team used computer algorithms to analyze over 30,000, quote, soft chirps from seven laboratory colonies over two years. They found that each colony had a unique sound that varies primarily in frequency and how much the frequency changes within a single chirp. Naked mole rats will respond to chirps that match only those of the colony and will ignore foreign dialects. And not only do they respond to the other animals they know, but they actually also responded to computer-generated calls that match their dialect. So there's definitely something about the dialect itself and not just knowing that that particular other mole is someone that they know and have heard before. And so in order to figure out if the dialects are learned or genetically encoded in a species that usually rejects outsiders, the team was fortunate to have three laboratory populations have pups near enough in time to each other that allowed them to switch a pup from each colony into another. They then listened to how the transplanted pups chirped. 
it turned out that they developed chirps more similar to their adoptive colony than their original colony. The closer to birth the move was made, the more closely they mimicked their adopted colony. Interestingly, while a colony had a distinctive sound, it isn't necessarily a stable one. In times of chaos, when a queen has died and a new one has not yet been established, dialects begin to dissolve, with chirps becoming much more variable. But once a new queen is established, however, the colony's dialect is re-established, suggesting that the queen not only controls the reproductive activity of the colony, but also controls the colony's dialect. This control of the colony's voice could potentially help to maintain cooperation in the naked mole rat society, but of course it means that they are required to put the good of the group above individual activity. We tend to think of this communication and cooperation as positive aspects of naked mole rat culture, but individuals are rigidly controlled in their behavior by the queen, Barker says. It gives them a huge survival advantage, but it's a bit like living in an oppressive regime. Well, unfortunately, I think it works for them, however, because they really do need to have that kind of social cohesion in order to be uh, successful and to be able to find that um, those food sources, which are rare. And I know this is a weird thing to say in uh, from an American, but I think that we do tend to um, take individualism too seriously. Sometimes um, I think that that has been a real point of pain when it comes to our responses to COVID-19. And so uh, there's been a real push that, you know, people have the freedom of choice to do what they want to do. And if they don't want to wear a mask, they don't have to. And if they don't want to social distance, they don't have to. And I think that, you know, we could use, we could use to learn a couple of lessons from uh, societies and animal species that, you know, are more cooperative and do place more value on the collective than on the individual. Now, I'm not saying we should have something like naked mole rats where there's a queen and everybody is, all the other individuals are completely subservient to that one animal. But I do think that we could stand to remind ourselves every once in a while that uh, the myth of rugged individualism is just that, a myth. Okay, so let's switch now a little bit from living animals to an animal-inspired robot. Um, or robot, as they used to say in the old days. And so a new robot has been developed to mimic the shape and movements of a jellyfish, allowing it to explore endangered coral reefs without damaging them. The robot, described in a new paper in the journal Science Robotics, was designed by researchers at the universities of Southampton and Edinburgh. They write that the small robot mimics, quote, nature's most efficient swimmer, the Aurelia arita jellyfish. And so A. arita is the scientific name for the common jellyfish. Francesco Giorgio Cerci from the 
University of Edinburgh, explains that they looked at features of squid, jellyfish, and octopus to develop the new robot. They are quite unique in that their lack of supportive skeletal structure does not prevent them from outstanding feats of swimming, he said. And so the, re the robot features a rubber head and eight tentacles created by a 3D printer. It uses pulse jet propulsion based on a system of resonance. The resonance is created by a piston striking the junction of the head and tentacles. When the piston hits the ideal frequency, setting off the natural resonance of the components, the robot is able to propel itself using large jets of water with very little energy. The result is a robot, quote, 10 to 50 times more efficient than typically small underwater vehicles powered by propellers. This increased efficiency combined with the additional benefit of the robot's soft, flexible exterior would make it ideal for operation for operating near sensitive environments such as coral reefs, archaeological sites, or even in waters crowded with swimmers, the researcher said in a statement. In future, robots like this might actually be used again, as noted, to explore areas too delicate for human divers, but also to perform tasks such as applying restorative substances to damaged coral reefs. And so currently the robot is a proof of concept, only tested in the lab, but the researchers want to create a fully maneuverable and autonomous underwater vehicle capable, capable of sensing and navigating its environment using the concepts embodied in the current prototype. So that is pretty exciting. Um, I think it would be really great to be able to develop these kinds of soft bodied robots that are able to do the kinds of things that we really don't want humans to be doing or that humans really can't do without potentially damaging the very surfaces that they're trying to protect. Um, and I, you know, I think that there's been a lot of strides made in uh, biomimicry in robotics. And I think that it just makes total sense. There's no reason to kind of reinvent the wheel here it's actually very easy, it's much more easy, I should say, to be able to take what nature has already produced through endless cycles of trial and error and be able to take those good ideas that have worked and have survived, you know, again, many, many, many uh, versions of uh, evolutionary pressures and to then take those and convert them into mechanical um, robots and in other ways use that information to inform our own technology. Because there's no point in starting from scratch when you have all of these great solutions already out there. So let's move on now, though, to talk about sleep. A new study of more than 2,000 Chinese people suggests that an afternoon nap can lead to better mental agility, improved locational awareness, verbal fluency, and working memory. Researchers studied 2,214 subjects over the age of 60, again in China. They were given a questionnaire about their napping habitats, napping habits, 
and then were given a series of tests to measure different types of cognitive ability. They found that 1,534 participants reported napping in some capacity, with 680 reporting that they kept going throughout the day. I'm actually curious, though, um, when, e when each group went to bed, but unfortunately that wasn't explored in the study. So I'm wondering if people who napped actually had a longer day, but unfortunately um, we didn't, they didn't really look at that. Now, the length and frequency of naps did vary, but the analysis nonetheless found significantly higher, quote unquote, cognitive performance scores among those subjects who reported that they took afternoon naps. Several studies have shown that afternoon napping promotes cognitive function in the elderly. On the other hand, some studies have shown opposite results, write the researchers in their published paper. The study highlights higher cognitive performance in nappers in the elderly, supporting previous observational studies. And so it turns out that the story is not so simple. Some studies have not found a correlation between napping and cognitive performance. The researchers suggest whether or not napping is intentional, along with the duration of naps, might play a role in exactly whether or not those correlations are found. In this study, unfortunately, neither was tracked specifically. The researchers defined a nap simply as more than five minutes and less than two hours. Another potential field of of inquiry would be to look at the use of naps to mediate health and inflammation in the body. Some studies have suggested that there is a connection between napping and the immune system. However, again, it's complicated. In the current study, researchers looked at the level of triglycerides in participants and found that regular nappers had higher levels of these lipids than non-nappers, suggesting perhaps that those who napped had a more sedentary lifestyle. In the end, it seems that the older we get, the more likely we are to nap, and in general, that naps are probably good for us, and that sleep is certainly a key component of health and well-being. And speaking of sleep, let's talk about a surprising correlation between sleep and the full moon. Much hay has been made of the effects of artificial light at night and its impact on our sleep schedule but we've always been exposed to varying levels of light at night because of the moon and its various phases. Moonlight is so bright to the human eye that it is entirely reasonable to imagine that, in the absence of other sources of light, this source of nocturnal light could have had a role in modulating human nocturnal activities and sleep. A team of researchers led by senior author and neurobiologist Horatio de la Iglesia from the University of Washington explained in a new study. However, whether the moon cycle can modulate human nocturnal activity and sleep remains a matter of controversy. And so, in order to try to pin down if there is a connection, the researchers gave over 500 participants wrist-based activity monitors in order to track their sleep patterns. The participants consisted of 98 from the Toba Kwam people, an, in, an indigenous group from the Formosa province of Argentina, 
and some of those participants had no activity, no access to electricity. Some had limited access in their homes, and some lived in urban areas where they had full access. The researchers then looked at 464 college students living in the Seattle area. They tracked participants' sleep activity during the lunar month cycle. They actually found the same pattern of sleep and waking in all participants across the two groups. We see a clear lunar modulation of sleep, with sleep decreasing and a later onset of sleep in the days preceding a full moon, Delia Iglesias says. Although the effect is more robust in communities without access to electricity, the effect is present in communities with electricity, including undergraduates at the University of Washington. And so they found that in general, sleep tends to start later and last a shorter amount on times, a shorter amount of time on nights leading up to a full moon when moonlight reflected by the waxing moon is brighter in the hours following dusk. Now, of course, this is a pretty small sample size to show an effect that should be theoretically universal, but the fact that the same pattern was seen in both the Argentinian and Seattle cohorts actually makes it pretty uh, interesting. Together, these results strongly suggest that human sleep is synchronized with lunar phases regardless of ethnic and sociocultural background and the level of urbanization, the researchers write in their paper published in the journal Science Advances. Now, the researchers believe that the effects could be an evolutionary adaptation that served our ancestors, allowing them to allowing them time for further activity before the invention of artificial light. And in fact, according to the Toba Kwam interviewees, moonlit nights are known for high hunting and fishing activity, increased social events, and more sexual encounters. Although the true adaptive value of human activity during moonlit nights remains to be determined, our data seems to show that humans in a variety of environments are more active and sleep less when moonlight is available during the early hours of the night, the researchers explained. This finding in turn suggests that the effect of electric light on modern humans may have tapped into an ancestral regul regulatory mode of moonlight on sleep. Okay, so that is really interesting um, and potentially a uh, something that honestly I would not have thought that uh, even in modern times with full access to electricity that that um, that lunar cycle would still affect us so that's really interesting okay uh, we are going to take a break now though and when we come back we will talk about water on the moon so do stay tuned for that you are listening to evidence-based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis. P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. -S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres. 
and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical courses off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in the CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back, and you are once again listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And so, again, we're going to be talking about the moon, with new research suggesting a way in which the moon can maintain water. Now, we know from recent images that there is evidence of water, for instance, in the shadow of craters and locked up in glassy beads that are sort of like tiny snow globes. And so therefore it is much less dry than we once believed. But where this water comes from has been a mystery. Now the moon may get water from asteroids or comets, but the sun's heat and the lack of an atmosphere should quickly dissipate that water. So why do we see it so often? It actually may be thanks to the earth itself. A new hypothesis suggests that a constant rain of protons driven by the solar wind smacks into mineral oxides in the moon's dust and rocks. The hydrogen ions then rip apart chemical bonds and form a loose, temporary bond with oxygen. 
For a few days each month, the moon passes through the teardrop-shaped magnetosphere, which temporarily protects it from the sun's solar winds. An international team of researchers used plasma and magnetic field instruments on the Japanese Kaguya orbiter to decipher this precise timing. They then used spectral data from the Chandrayaan-1 moon mineralogy mapper to map the distribution of water at the highest levels of the moon's surface. So they were expecting to see a difference. Well, it turns out nothing happened. <laughs> the time series of the moon's water signal showed no appreciable difference in the three to five days spent in the lee of Earth's magnetosphere. Now, this could mean that the hypothesis is simply wrong and that there is some other mechanism that replenishes the water found on the surface of the moon. But it may be that the Earth's magnetic field also sends sheets of plasma that deliver an equivalent amount of hydrogen ions as the solar winds, especially at the poles. Thus, it could be that the amount of water created from both sources produces the same amount of water. It's also possible that oxygen from the upper atmosphere at the Earth's pole is actually carried all the way to the moon, especially during periods when the geomagnetic activity of the Earth is heightened. Right now, unfortunately, it's still an open question. Now, of course, we need to figure out how the moon keeps water because it will become increasingly important as we move toward using the moon as a base for future space exploration. The more water that can be locally sourced on the moon, the better for future space missions. And so obviously we are trying to use the moon as a kind of stepping stone in order to then be able to send people to Mars. And if we want to continue to do that kind of uh, sort of hop skipping through the um, solar system, it would be good to have a really true base on the moon where things like hydrogen fuel can be created and things like that need water, especially if you are going to have people maintaining systems on the moon and having perhaps a base on the moon, they will need water. And it's a lot easier, again, to get that water from the moon itself than it is to have to either create it or bring it with us. Um, and so hopefully we can figure out how this works. And so we'll know how sort of much we can manipulate the amount of water on the moon without disturbing that cycle. Okay. So now we are going to move from the moon to the sun. Now the sun has lots of different cycles of activity. The most well-known is the Schwab cycle, an 11-year cycle of sunspot activity. But the sun also has longer periods, period cycles, which can't be gleaned from our short period of solar observation. I mean, technically we have 400 years of sunspot observations because as soon as astronomers could begin to look at the sun through a telescope, they began to notice and track those sunspots. Um, but that's still 
a fairly short time period. And so we can see versions of the Schwab cycle back to the early 1600s. But a team of researchers led by Hans Arno Seinal and Lucas Wacker of the Laboratory of Ion Beam Physics at ETH Zurich wanted to trace the Schwab cycle back as far as they could. They were able to trace the cycle back to the year 969 uh, CE by measuring radioactive carbon concentrations in tree rings. And so writing in the journal Nature Geoscience, they present a nearly thousand-year-long, annually resolved, and accurately dated record of atmospheric carbon-14 concentration from trees covering multiple periods of high and low solar activity. And so the researchers looked at 13 different timbers from 11 different buildings in the UK and Switzerland from various time periods, including the Abbey Church of St. Alban, which was constructed in the 11th century. Now, the signal of radioactive carbon in tree rings doesn't come from the sun itself, but rather by cosmic rays. Since the sun's magnetic field helps keep cosmic rays from reaching Earth, the more powerful the sun's magnetic field, the fewer C-14 isotopes reach the Earth to be absorbed by trees as they grow. Therefore, lower amounts of carbon-14 in tree rings correspond with periods of greater solar activity. Now, normally, measuring the amount of carbon-14 isotopes in tree rings isn't actually that easy. It involves using a Geiger counter to measure decay events of each isotope and takes a lot of time and material. The only measurements of that kind were made in the 80s and 90s, says Lucas Walker, but only for the last 400 years and using an, the extremely laborious counting method. This team was able to develop a technique of measuring the carbon-14 using accelerator mass spectrometry. Using modern accelerator mass spectrometry, we were now able to measure the C14 concentration to within 0.1% in just a few hours with tree ring samples that were a thousand times smaller, said PhD student Nicholas Brum in a press release. Um, Brum was actually responsible for those analyses. And so an accelerator mass spectrometer accelerates both the carbon 12 and carbon-14 isotopes in a sample through a magnetic field, which directs the two isotopes in different directions due to their different masses. The results are then statistically analyzed. And so the team was able to create a continuous record from between 969 to 1933, and they confirmed the 11-year Schwab cycle through that entire century of data. They found that during solar minima, the amplitude of the cycle as it goes up and down is smaller. They also confirmed the pronounced solar proton event in 993, which created a peak in atmospheric carbon-14. During this event, protons emitted by the sun were accelerated enough to penetrate the Earth's magnetic field and caused ionization in the atmosphere. There had actually been debate up to this point whether the signal was real. 
In addition to proving the 993 event, the researchers found two other events, one in 1052 and another in 1279. Neither of these events has been pre had been previously recorded. And so it suggests that events such as this may be more common than previously thought, which is potentially a danger to modern infrastructure. Infrastructure. Such events can pose a hazard to electronics both in satellites and on Earth. And so the next step is to continue to push the earliest time available to the last ice age using samples in tree ring archives that go back 14,000 years in sub-fossilized wood, which is still rich in carbon. Now, speaking of the sun, back in 1998, a neat thing happened. A spacecraft in near-Earth space was able to measure a coronal mass ejection, or a CME, and at the same time, a spacecraft out past Mars was in the right place to also measure that CME. This means that we've had data measurements of the CME at two different points from the Sun, which gives us a unique glimpse into these powerful eruptions. Now, coronal mass ejections are not as visually spectacular as solar flares, but they're actually much more powerful. They occur when twisted magnetic field lines reconnect, converting and releasing tremendous amounts of energy in the process. This energy flows out as ionized plasma and electromagnetic radiation, contained within a helical magnetic field and launched into space on the solar wind. When a CME hits the Earth, it can disrupt satellite communications and cause aurora when the charged particles interact with the magnetosphere and ionosphere. Now, we know a fair amount about what happens when a CME hits the Earth, but we had much less information about what happens as the CME moves out into the solar system. But in 1998, we had two spacecraft designated to study solar wind. NASA's wind spacecraft was positioned in L in the L1 Lagrangian point. This is a point in space between two bodies where the gravitational forces produce regions of elevated attraction and repulsion. They're often used by spacecraft to reduce fuel consumption while remaining in a particular position. So the wind spacecraft was sitting around 1 AU from the sun, basically the same amount away from the sun as the Earth's orbit when a CME hit it on March 4th, 1998. Then on March 22nd, 1998, the CME hit Ulysses, a spacecraft that was at the time around 5.4 AUs away from the sun in the average orbit of Jupiter. Astronomers have now examined that data to discover how a CME changes as it moves deeper into the solar system. They were most interested in the magneto-hydrodynamic evolution of the embedded magnetic cloud. The data shows that in the 4.4 AU between the two spacecrafts, the helical structure of the magnetic cloud eroded significantly. The researchers believe this is because a second trailing magnetic cloud, traveling at a faster velocity than the first, caught up with the original CME and compressed it by the time it was measured by Ulysses. 
Such a compression wave could explain why the helical structure of the CME's magnetic cloud became more twisted rather than less, as would generally be expected. The magnetic interaction between the two clouds may diffuse some of the outer layers, leaving a more twisted core. What clearly emerged from this analysis is that at 5.4 astronomical units, the second magnetic cloud is heavily interacting with the first one, the researchers wrote in their paper. As a result, the magnetic structure of the preceding magnetic cloud is strongly deformed. In fact, its large-scale rotation extends well beyond the rear of the following magnetic cloud and represents de facto a form of background magnetic field rotation. And so we are currently learning more and more about the sun. Uh, at, right now, we have several probes and orbiters surveying the sun. And so you can tell that, or you can see that we also have this old evidence that has remained to be interpreted. And so it's extremely interesting to be able to not only be doing this new research, but also to be exploring this old research because it's really important to know what the sun is doing and also what it may do in the future because it's not only, for instance, the sole source of life on all of life on Earth, but in an increasingly electrified and internet connected world, we depend heavily on infrastructure and satellites that actually can be heavily affected by CMEs and other phenomena produced by the sun. So it is really important to remember to keep track of that. Okay, so speaking of historical data being examined at the present, Let's once again talk about the cache of glass plate photographs collected since the 19th century in various astronomical archives across the country. For around a century, astronomical observations were preserved using emulsion-coated dry glass plate photography. In North America alone, there are an estimated 2.4 million glass plates created between 18 the 1890s and the 1970s. They were replaced in the 1970s by CCD detectors or charged couple device detectors. Of the extant collections, only an estimated 400,000 plates have been digitized in research quality. Now we've talked about this before, especially the DASH, Digital Access to the Sky Century at Harvard, in the U.S. and the International Applause, or the Archives of Photographic Plates for Astronomical Use projects. Many of the plates in the DASH collection were actually originally analyzed by a group of women computers working for 25 cents an hour, six days a week, calculating the temperature and motion of the stars on the plates. Now, it's actually interesting. I looked up what 25%, what 25 cents an hour would be. And in today's money, they were actually making $6.38 an hour, which I'm pretty sure is still more than minimum wage in many states today. Um, so that's a damning uh, fact about capitalism. 
uh, because these women's work was considered, you know, they were considered kind of at the bottom of the barrel, even though they were doing important work. And in fact, initially, they were only allowed to be volunteers. They weren't even allowed to get recompense for their work. And so these Harvard computers, because originally what a computer was, was a person who did computations, were trailblazers who helped pave the way for women to make inroads into computing, engineering, and aerospace industries. And so it's really important to remember their uh, contributions to the field of astronomy and also to their um, contribution to women being able to find a place in other related fields and in science in general. But getting back to today, a team from the University of Chicago Department of Astronomy and Astrophysics and the Cavalli Institute for Cosmological Astrophysics decided to explore if there was an easier way to digitize these images for modern analysis. The plate scanning process is actually quite simple, Will Cerny of the University of Chicago told Universe Today. After we select a plate, we make sure the surface is clean so that the dust particles don't get mistaken for stars in the final image. Then we set our scanner to the highest quality we can and produce an image file. In effect, we are considering the scanner to be a scientific instrument. For each small piece of information on the plate, we get a digital rendition of the amount of light transmitted through the photograph. From there, we upload the resulting file to a website which maps the celestial coordinates onto the image, which also creates a file in a standardized format for astronomical analysis. And so the team wanted to find plates taken under ideal sky conditions with long exposure depicting a large variety of galactic and extragalactic objects in order to gauge limiting magnitude. They also needed a plate ideal for calibrating both stellar brightness and the background illumination, which covered a swath of sky not on the galactic plane. So they turned to the Yerkes Observatory, located on Lake Geneva in southern Wisconsin, and built in 1897 by George Ellery Hale, an American astronomer and telescope maker, which houses 150,000 to 200,000 glass plates. Now, currently the Yerkes is home to the Great 40-inch Telescope, the largest still operating refracting telescope in the world. However, most of these plates were taken using the 24-inch Richley Reflector, starting in 1901. And that's actually now housed at the Smithsonian or at the McDonald Observatory in Western Texas. They were able to yield a limiting magnitude of plus 19. Now in comparison, a backyard telescope can usually see down to a magnitude of plus 14 on a clear night with good visibility. And a modern ground all sky survey has a limiting magnitude of around 10,000 times fainter at around magnitude plus 24. And so it's, you know, in that middle range, but it has the importance of being a long time scale of images.
The simplicity of the process makes it possible to digitize a large number of plates in a relatively small amount of time, says Cerny. It also has the benefit of not requiring a custom scanner, making it accessible to teams without the wherewithal to design or purchase one. Custom scanners are prohibitively expensive. If our methods can be generalized, then photographic plate collections from multiple observatories could be rendered available for use in scientific research. And so the team ended up using a commercially available Epson Expression 12,000XL graphic arts scanner. With the files initially scanned as positive TIFF files, then saved as FITS files, which are used by many modern uh, astrophotographers. The targeted scan area resulted in a field of view 1.5 degrees wide or around three times the diameter of a full moon. One of the first plates scanned by the team, RY60, was taken in 1903 and it centered on the plus 10 magnitude galaxy NGC 7331 in the constellation Pegasus. And this turned up a star or possible supernova not visible in the SDSS or Sloan Digital Sky Survey comparison images. And so that's the images from the more modern uh, survey that they've been comparing these plates to. If confirmed, it would be the fourth known supernova observed in this galaxy, which is around 45 million light years away. Interestingly, they had chosen the plate for their paper without realizing that they had a new candidate supernova. We were going through the image of the galaxy on the plate as part of our analysis, which involved comparing the plate with a modern image of the same field of sky. At one point, we blinkered, rapidly alternated, between the two pictures and noticed what appeared to be a star pleasant, present on the plate image, explained Cerny. The team also made sure that it was not a false positive by checking to see if the image was an asteroid, a dust fleck, or a galactic classical nova. And so having eliminated all of those things, they now think it may be a previously unknown supernova. Now, other glass plates have led to or helped with modern discoveries as well. Glass plate photographs of Tabby's star, which we've talked about on several occasions, were used in confirming that the star was fading over longer timescales. Another study found evidence for a potential exoplanet, uh, which had been discovered which had been documented in 1917, but since astronomers weren't looking for it at the time, it was overlooked. So it is exciting to know that there is a low-cost and effective technique to begin to take these rather, frankly, cumbersome and very delicate plates and turn them into high-quality images that can be used by modern astronomers and which represent a century-plus record of stellar objects. Who knows what else we'll find on these plates once they've actually been digitized. And in fact, the team hopes to make the Yerksey plate scans eventually 
um, both the scans and logbooks that are connected to them, available online via the University of Chicago Library website, continuing the long-standing commitment of collaboration between professional astronomers and the public. And so astronomy really is one of those fields where there is still a lot of room for amateurs to be able to make important discoveries. And it's one of the fields that is most often uh, involved in citizen science projects where they um, put out information that is raw data and ask citizen scientists to actually comb through it for them. Um, because again, the human eye is still uh, better than a computer at this point. We haven't yet uh, gotten that far to be able to mimic the human eye's abilities yet. And so um, it's great that this might be another place where if they are able to put up all of these scans, they might then be able to have citizen science projects where people, again, are looking at them and doing this kind of comparison work and potentially finding even more new stellar objects. So that is very exciting. And it is also all we have for tonight. So uh, please do come back next week. Um, I should be talking about the story that is how the human thumb potentially developed. Um, I ran out of time today. I apologize for that. But stay tuned or come back, I should say, next week for that and more on Evidence-Based Radio. Good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.